Hey everyone, you're very welcome back to another episode of the OPEX podcast. On today's show, we see the return of a previous guest, Sean Mishka, aka the Movement Miyagi. On this episode, Sean and I discuss all things motor skill acquisition. As always, this is a great conversation with Sean, guys, and I hope you enjoy. All right, Mishka, you beauty. I pressed record. We're recording, and just as I said, literally seconds before we start recording, I said, "I'll press record here, and sure, we'll see what happens." <laughs> yeah, you know, one thing: if the audience has heard us talk before, um, either a they may not listen again, or b uh, they know that you don't really know where you're going to get when you and I get together. You know, we don't really know what paths we're going to go down, uh, what rabbits we're going to find down those holes, but somewhere along the way, there may be something for the audience or ourselves to at least think about or chew on. So thank you for having me, buddy. Just as you said that there, there was a famous, uh, and it's probably never been shown in America, but years and years ago for the Irish listeners, they would appreciate this. There was, a really famous comedy program. It was called Father Ted. It was just, it was about like these priests, but it was, it was like, it was a comedy. It was funny, but there was this one episode of this priest. And, uh, he, um, he came to live with these two other priests and I'm going somewhere with this story, by the way, because you, because, because <laughs> the reason, the reason why you remind me of this episode was you just said there, if, if, if anything, if the audience don't get anything out of it, usually me and you do. Yeah. Uh, so in this episode, there's this priest and he's drilling holes in the wall in the house. And the two priests are upstairs. They go, "What is that noise? It sounds like somebody's drilling holes in the wall." And they go downstairs. There's your man drilling holes in the wall. And they go, "What? Are, what are you doing?" And he turns around and he just sits down and he lights a cigarette and he just goes, "I've had my fun, and that's all, <laughs> and, and that's all that matters." So when you, just as you said that, as as you were saying, like even if the listeners don't get any of this, but we do. I was just thinking. We've had our fun and that's all that matters. Yeah, I, I think, you know, on that note, I, I think I probably have listened to our episodes uh, more than the actual listening audience of yours <laughs> has, uh, simply because I do get a whole heck of a lot out of conversations with you because you certainly uh, push me and, and force me to grow and evolve within my thoughts. You obviously ask uh, thought-provoking questions and and offer up ideas and perspectives that are very unique and authentic. So I always appreciate getting on the line with you, whether it's uh, online or offline, whether it's recorded or, or non-recorded. I appreciate you. So it's been about a year since we last spoke. What has or has anything sort of changed in your sort of study, your learnings, life, coaching, you know, have you been having any thoughts or mullings over specific areas or topics within the whole skill acquisition world or in any other aspects of your life and coaching? Yeah, I love the open-endedness there because God only knows where we're going to go. But um, as far as where we're at right now, Robbie, and, and for those of you who are listening out there, I'm right at the end of the National Football League season, right at the end of the 2019-2020 NFL season. And standing there is always in a place of reflection. Uh, there's, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of reflection at all times, a big proponent of constant recalibration, if you will, or, or evolution within one's thoughts and ideas and really trying to look back and um, filter things for what they were and what they should be heading forward or what they potentially could be heading forward. 
uh, in 2019, we, and I, when I say we, I mean the individual players who partner with me and that allow me to partner with them on their skill acquisition and performance um, journey, we had this theme or this idea of honestly and, and authentically expressing oneself. And of course, it's a poof or a spoof off of Bruce Lee's idea where he said that martial arts were nothing but an honest expression of oneself or they mm. should be. And because of what we went through in 2018, so uh, a season and a half or two seasons ago, uh, which we've talked about in the past, I believe that we talked about it a little bit in the last time that you and I chatted uh, last February in 2019. But in that previous season, uh, we had realized like out of all 1,696 players across the league that maybe at times I had been um, a little bit too much overbearing in regards to putting people within the containers that I expected them to live in. When I say people, I mean my respective players that partner with me. So those individual people who lock arms with me on this skill acquisition journey or allow me to do the same for them. And so I had put them in container, very um, non-Jeet Kundo, very non-Bruce Lee-like, right? Um, sort of getting them to fit in their respective styles that I expected them to be. And then all of a sudden I realized every single one of these players who play at the highest level are obviously freaks of nature in and of themselves. They all have their own authentic uh, fingerprint on who they are and, and their own form of life or what we would refer to as their form of life. Their, their paradigm, if you will, uh, their expression, if you will their fingerprint. And so what I tried to do, or what we tried to do as a group in 2019, was really kind of go back to that, try to figure out who each one of them were, who each one of them wanted to be, both on the field within their movement skill execution, and then hopefully their journey towards movement skill refinement, but also then off the field. So we started prioritizing off the field behaviors a whole heck of a lot more. We found ourselves in more of a yin and yang type of balance, uh, if you will, both on the field and off. And then my, my structure of my training environment or my learning environment and the problems that existed there, I started to give them even more ownership than that, which what I was known for giving prior to that point. And that was something that was always a piece or a part of my, um, my personal craft and form of life, but I gave even more autonomy over to the players. And in that, I felt like we constantly, I, I, I found them in a, in a much different place of partnership and they had that much more ownership within their partnership. Um, I found that I was able to then continually put myself into their human movement system maybe more intimately and more frequently as well, start to understand how they were connecting to the information in the world more deeply. And then from there, my friend, what happened is it allowed through this honest expression of oneself for them as players and as humans, it allowed me to honestly express myself within who they wanted me or needed me to be as well. So it allowed me to be more receptive. It allowed me to be more perceptive and it allowed me to be maybe more coupled as part of the dynamical system that was unfolding in front of me. So it was a huge year of growth and of learning and of evolution 
for the players that, that I partner with, but also myself as a movement skill acquisition specialist as well. And also for those of you out there who've really followed my blog posts throughout the course of the 2019 NFL season, it won't come as a shock or surprise then that in 2019, my personal theme within my analysis of a movement as a movement skill coach was oriented around the power of information and, and the information that exists in the world and the specified energy distributions that exist, these patterns of energy that I believe uh, from a movement behavior standpoint and perspective drives the movement that we coordinate, control, and organize. So I really tried to center many of my discussions, many of my investigations, and then hopefully, ultimately, uh, our collective uh, understanding oriented around the information that exists in the world and how we connect to that information and how we couple our movements in response to it. And that, of course, is somewhat subjective and somewhat qualitative uh, for where we stand right now. But then I quickly realized that maybe it should be qualitative and maybe it should be subjective because um, you know, we all have our own affordances for action and we're all going to perceive uh, those affordances and that information. We're all going to connect with it in really uh, unique and special and authentic ways. So this year was just one year since the last time we were on the line chatting for, for the public or for the world. It was just a year of authenticity, if you will, and, and trying to find that honest expression of where we all are trying to go, which is maybe, hopefully, getting closer and closer to our own personal uh, stance of truth, if you will. Great stuff. And since we spoke last year, obviously you had your conference uh, last May. How did that go? Uh, it, went, it went well. Um, I, I will say that there, it brought its challenges. For those uh, who are listening to this, they will realize that we basically, uh, I don't, I don't want to use the word uh, pit one side versus another, but we tried to bring people or um, the commune people from across the community who stand on either side of the theoretical fence, whether it's the generalized motor program and schema uh, cognitive oriented side versus the more ecological dynamics, uh, more perception action, more information movement coupling perspective, the dynamical system side. We brought people from each side of that bridge or that fence and allowed them basically to hopefully lock arms together and discuss things from their respective points of view. Um, and in that locking of arms, hopefully try to inform one another of their stance and their perspectives. And of course, as you could probably imagine, uh, it was a mixed bag of responses when, when you do exactly that. You know, so if I'm being honest, we got, uh, I don't know if we had a lot of people who, um, you know, th there was a lot of, I, I don't want to use the word debate because I think that debate is a, sometimes has a negative connotation in some circles, but in my life or in my circles, um, I believe that it's a positive thing. We had these debates that happened. I don't know how much we had people go across company lines, if you will, like no one went from being a, you know, a, the vote uh, information processing to then going to the completely other side of the fence. But I think we were able to present things from both sides and hopefully see where that individual was coming from, hopefully stand in their shoes a little bit. And then that, basically set the tone for where we're going in 2020. 
Um, you know, we are hosting it at Altus down in, down in Phoenix, Arizona this year. Mm. Uh, I did actually get Stu McMillan to agree to present for me uh, and for our group. So this, these are all huge things that I didn't know if ever were going to come to pass because you know how stubborn Stu can be, especially when it comes to, to, to me and doing anything that I want him to do. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, Altus is so graciously hosting us uh, at the XO site. Uh, in Phoenix, Arizona on May 16th and 17th. And this year, we our theme is oriented around standing on the shoulders of movement giants. And so what we're going to do with that is obviously this goes back to that old cliche quote that we can see further if we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I want to take some of those ideas, some of the major concepts, the thoughts, the questions even that those individuals had, the Nikolai Bernsteins, the J.J. Gibsons, the Carl Newells, those individuals, obviously I name people mostly from the ecological dynamics perspective, of course, but we will have certain people who are also representing that other side as well from the movement sciences perspective. <laughs> the, other, the other side, you sound like- The right. other side, what, what we would refer to uh, in the ecological dynamics world as the dark side, right? You sound like, uh, Ra you sound like Reagan during the 80s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that side over there, that light doesn't touch, <laughs> yeah. um, you, know, you know, but uh, we do have people represented across the board there, but we want to take some of those ideas from those respective movement giants and sort of stand where they stood, hopefully see what they saw and ask the things that they were asking and hopefully allow their ideas to stand more the test of time to kind of give them um, their they're due a little bit more, uh, whether they're still with us or whether they've gone and passed, because I believe we kind of owe it to them for where we currently stand in the questions that we're asking or even the things that we hold near and dear as truth to us now. So I want to let their ideas and thoughts marinate for the room, if you will, and then discuss some of those thoughts and ideas and show where each individual's form of life stands based on the reflections of those people who've come before us that have sort of set the tone for us. So that's my corny uh, way of saying that I, you know, owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to individuals like, like Bernie and, and Gibson and the like, but also then to maybe remind the community as to what they each stood for and what it may mean for our respective crafts as well. Great stuff. And this group emergence you also set up last June. Do you maybe just want to fill the listeners in on what what was the uh, the, the 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 sort of light bulb moment to start this group? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you exactly when it started to stem in my mind, or where where it started to uh, emerge from, if you will, where it originated, uh, its origin story. At the Sport Movement Skill Conference in 2019. Um, or at any sport movement skill conference up to this point, even though there's only been two of them, and there will be a third here coming up in May, is we, at every hour, we have these breakout groups, which are interactive group discussions. They are emergent discussions where there's just a topic up on the board, and the group comes together and basically just... Uh, let's just call it riffs, you know, if you, if you go back to it may get loud in here, you know, type of um, documentary, right? And that's usually what happens to a certain degree. You put that idea or those thoughts up on the board or a question, and it leads people in certain directions. And I was facilitating or moderating 
one of those interactive group discussions last year oriented around the idea of what is problem solving within movement. And kind of taking the Sif and Verkoshansky quote that everybody uses, but no one really knows exactly what it means to them or they don't think deeply enough about what it means to them, where Sif and Verkoshansky in super training said, sport is a problem solving activity where movements are used to produce the necessary solutions. Mm. And of course, if we extend that another step further to conversations that you and I have had in the past, we have the Nikolai Bernstein idea of no natural phenomenon can be understood without carefully considering how it emerged, right? And I remember sitting within this interactive group discussion and people were talking um, almost at a really surface level. They weren't getting to the true depth of the complexity of sport movement behavior, at least to the degree that I believe that we could or should uh, grasp onto in order to maybe most um, not only understand the movement behavior that we see emerging out on a sporting context or within a sporting context, but also then to have an influence or impact in helping the individual to acquire or refine movement skill uh, more functionally to be used in that context. And so everyone was talking really surface level and all of a sudden this light bulb moment happened for me within the room like we have all these people within the community who obviously I'm highly motivated by and, and, and I love locking arms with, but everyone was kind of ride, taking this unbridled passion and energy that they have for athletic performance and specifically from a movement skill perspective. But people really still weren't looking at the trees through the forest, if you will. Um, you know, they, they weren't looking and connecting some of the dots in the relationships in the uh, maybe even understanding of some of the concepts that were given to us by some of these movement giants from before. Uh, very few people seem to be uh, maybe respecting not only the movement problem in the information that exists there, but even respecting this performer environment relationship. And of course, when I pose the question in regards to what is problem solving within movement or movement skill, that's where my scope or, or lens of analysis goes to mm. immediately to the performer environment relationship from an ecological dynamics framework. And then it dawned on me as people started talking about many of these ideas, they seem very intimidated by them. They seem um, the ideas were misunderstood amongst most. And then what I realized, and this is sort of this uh, another Robert Frost moment, if you will, for me, I realized that I was part of the problem as opposed to part of the solution, maybe to the degree that I wanted to be. That I needed to be more clear in regards to maybe where these ideas um, kind of flowed from for me and where they have worth for my respective craft and why I believe there's some staying power or there's some legs in these ideas. But I realized that we had to do better as a community in discussing and elaborating upon the ideas not running away from the complexity, but running to it and discussing and chewing on those, those ideas, those concepts, those terms that maybe intimidate many. And while there, there were a number of other individuals who then came together to form this movement skill education company or this brand, which we referred to as Emergence, which just looked at as, you know, in the play on words, the pun is intended, of course, because we were individual component parts uh, coming together, self-organizing around this information and around these ideas 
to discuss them, to hopefully show what, where the interconnections and relations are. And we just started producing educational content around many of these concepts that obviously you know and the listening audience knows uh, that, that I feel um, are close to my heart because of the impact and influence they've had in my own athletes or the athletes that I work with. So um, long-winded answer as to how emergence came to come uh, or came to be, but we've now put together three courses. Uh, one uh, entitled Underpinnings, which was an eight-hour course where we actually brought other expert interview uh, individuals together, individuals like Keith Davids uh, and Rob Gray, uh, and Ben Franks and a number of other individuals. We brought them together to speak from their individual perspectives. We then unpacked some of those underpinning ideas of an ecological dynamics framework, things like a systems approach and things like the importance and power of information or where affordances are specified from information and how athletes couple their, per their perceptions and actions oriented around those affordances that are there within our environmental landscape. And then what, what pedagogy looks like because of those ideas. So Underpinnings was this huge comprehensive undertaking, if you will, uh, for our team. And then we then went on to uh, create another one referred to as Ecological Dynamics for Dummies, which was a kind of a bite-sized version of Underpinnings. And we took the most pertinent ideas from that those things that would get people started, but they weren't ready to go in full steam ahead. And then finally, a third course, uh, which was looking at the use of repetition without repetition or ecological dynamics related ideas and how they may be able to uh, be utilized in a weight room or in a traditional strength and conditioning setting. Because I find that that's where a lot of people are, but they're not really understanding as to how they may make all of their learning environments have this reflection from Bernstein back in the day of repetition without repetition and how almost anything and everything we do, not only within a sporting context, but within our lives is really uh, this problem solving experience where we're looking to allow the system to self-organize a solution towards facing it. Great stuff. So uh, uh, one or two topics around my mind that I'd love you to delve into. One is around emotional regulation and um, essentially solving moving problems um, or action perception coupling. Um, and then I remember too in a previous episode, I can't remember if it was on my own or, or on the OPEX one where um, I, uh, we, I really wanted you to touch on sort of um, return to play or mm -hmm. return to performance as I prefer to call it because you can always get people back playing but trying to get them back to a previous level of performance and beyond is a is a different sort of question so maybe like a a rehab situation and how that sort of in your own mind how you sort of see that through your own filter so we have emotion we have essentially return to performance and then something just that, that's been interesting to me too is just to see if you've ever looked into these areas is there anything you've ever looked at from like a nutritional or nutraceutical sort of standpoint to maybe, I don't know, facilitate or enhance learning and performance more so from like a, you know, um, neurogenesis. Well, does neurogenesis really happen in the brain? We'll just say like, um, we know that, uh, what's the word I'm trying to think of what you call it? Like, new um 
synapses can form all right in the brain like you can make new synaptic connections and all would where the, the the argument is that new neurons may not actually happen even though they're shown in the hippocampus it does but other areas of the brain but you can make new synaptic connections but is there anything you've looked at in the literature or spoke to maybe with some experts like from a nutraceutical standpoint that can maybe facilitate athletes you know maybe like some sort of if it's pharmacological or nutraceutical that they could take pro pre-training post-training along them with things like sleeping for consolidation and learning and that is have you ever looked into those areas too so basically we have emotions rehab and then have you looked into maybe some of these nutraceutical areas for maybe like helping to facilitate synaptic growth and neural sort of development and learning so they're the three areas i don't know which one you want to tackle first i know that's a whole three-part episode in itself right now as always as always uh, a wide variety of movement problems right here you're going to test uh my movement uh, or sport movement specialist dexterity uh <laughs> you know the ability to solve any emerging movement problem under any situation and under so any do you, condition do you want to tackle like one of the art yeah, let's go one by one there um let's start with the emotional regulation simply because Again, it, it was sort of at the origin of the 2019 theme that my players and I took in regards to this honest expression of oneself, right? If we really talk about or dive into the ideas of the nonlinearity of human movement systems, mm -hmm. what we realize is moment to moment, we're never the same, yeah. right? Uh, whether it's problem to problem and the problem disposition that faces us in the information we may connect to there is going to differ and then therefore our movement solution is, or whether if we as an organism, knowing that emotions are part of those functional constraints that are of the organism constraints. Mm -hmm. This is a very vital topic and subject for all of us who are working practically with many of these ideas, right? Because in the lab or in the theories, we can regulate emotions really easily, right? But in the real world, it gets a whole heck of a lot more messy because there's a lot more chaos out there. How my individual players will solve their respective movement problems in front of them will differ dramatically day to day, not only in who they are physically, but who they are psychologically and emotionally as well. Because as you as you were speaking to there, that is going to influence not only our cognitions and our intentions or our aims to act in a given way, maybe how motivated we may be on that respective day to go and explore in that mistake-led learning zone. Or also then, if it impacts our cognition to that degree, it certainly is going to impact what we perceive and how we act what we have available to us and how we may connect our respective solution dynamics to meet the needs of the problem. If we're in a really happy-go-lucky state on that respective day, or if we're feeling really authentically ourselves, we certainly are going to be able to connect to information outside of us in a much more in-tune, um, intimate way it will resonate with us a whole lot more with a lot more clarity than if like my players come to me and they had just had a fight on the way to the, the field mm -hmm. with their significant other. And then they're really not even present within that respective uh, environment or within that learning environment. And so if we don't get used to navigating these conversations and trying to understand how they could potentially impact 
how individual athletes are solving these respective problems, there, you know, any theory isn't really going to have much application if we can't actually discuss it or, or talk about it and look at it. Because also we know, Robbie, we've talked about before how certain key performance inhibitors, such as pressure and anxiety, enter the mix to dramatically change our adaptiveness of our movement system, right? Yeah. So if it kind of typically what we find is that pressure and anxiety strips us back down to a level of a performer of a level of mastery well below of that, which what we really are when we are being negatively impacted, uh, whether it's happening through reinvestment, if we want to take it through that way, mm. or constrained action, or constrained perception and decision making as well. And that's really what I find is when my players arrive, and when I say my, uh, Stu hates when I use that word, so I don't mean my like I own them. The players who are coming to my learning environment, when they arrive, I usually attempt to, and any of my players could attest to this, attempt to meet them in the parking lot. I want to see them outside or off of the field first to get a vibe on who they are on that respective day. When they arrive, did they just come out of a fight or were they listening to their favorite song in the car before they got there? Or yeah. did they get to stop at the local coffee shop to get their espresso because that's part of their performance routine? Mm -hmm. Or did they not get good sleep the night before? Or do they have their kids along with them on that respective day and they, they have to take care of their kids who are going to sit off to the side of the field? All of these things are part of this emotional regulation or are feeling feeding into this, this it's all this perpetual feed into their emotions and who they are, their immediate acute form of life. So what they're thinking, how they may behave, how they may approach certain problems is always going to be dependent on those respective factors. And I have to, as the sport movement specialist or the ultimately the facilitator, attempt to get a grasp on who they are on that respective day to know how I should scale the movement problem to meet their needs. Because I want the movement problem to meet them as the solver in where they have the potential of going and growing from. Now, there are certain times that even when they are in or maybe not having the best control or regulation of their emotions, that I still have to test them with complexity of problems, right? because these players are ultimately going to have to perform on an NFL Sunday. And that NFL Sunday game starts at noon, whether they just had a fight with their girlfriend or not. Mm -hmm. Right. So there are times that I have to pick and choose opportunities to push them and, and to push their buttons and poke them and prod them to go in that place when they're not necessarily feeling up to it. But then there are other times of the year that maybe it makes more sense that I would do harm than good if I were to push them into that complex learning environment that they don't necessarily have solutions to at that acute moment in time. So where my long-winded answer is going here is I think we don't discuss the individual organism in front of us and how they are interacting with the environment based on their functional constraints at that moment in time nearly as much as we should. Mm. So I think you bringing up this topic is a really poignant one because I believe that we have to start having this conversation more. Uh, 
we can't get buy-in unless we meet them where they are, right? And meeting them where they are will help us determine what the challenge point should be to stretch their optimal grip over the range of affordances and what exists within the problem that they find there. Um, I don't know what thoughts you have from the things I just said there. Uh, obviously, I kind of said a mouthful and I went in some different directions. But I think ultimately encouraging them to always authentically be themselves and authentically express themselves. I know it sounds really corny and it kind of ties back into what uh, our theme was for 2019. But I found that players may, were maybe were may, way more transparent with who they are or what they were going through and maybe what they were ready to handle within my learning environment in 2019 when I explicitly articulated, this is what this year is going to be about for all of us, both as individuals as well as collectively. And I found that players were, were maybe much more open and transparent with sharing with what they were ready to accomplish or what they were ready to face in my learning environments because of that. Now, you, as always, just from listening to your thoughts there, you, you bring up a lot of my own sort of thoughts. Um, you know, first thing is that emotion essentially just is energy in motion, that is emotion. So it absolutely has to be a, a huge consideration when it comes to every part of skill acquisition and solving moving problems. But what it made me think of too was um, the book, The Four Agreements, and the first agreement being impeccable with your word. And, you know, I remember the first time I read that and I, I heard that first agreement. Like I was young, I was much younger, a younger man than I was at the time. <laughs> and when I heard being impeccable with your word, like the, the, my immediate thought was, what the fuck does that mean? I had no clue what he was on about. And as I read more into that, like he... he Don Miguel Ruiz is what who was who I'm talking about when I say he the author um senior by the way because it's junior too Don Miguel Ruiz senior um what he made me realize with that first agreement was that like words are extremely powerful like they 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 can be so words can be just as violent as physical violence mm -hmm. in terms of what they can they can do to an individual and the reason why I bring this up is that as coaches we really do need to be very aware of what we're saying and how we're saying it to our athletes because again it can it can have such an impact on their emotional state and then thus be a you know shape that that functional um constraint part of the of the sort of triad of of, of organism task and environment um and it just made me realize too then that it really does all start with you. Like it has to start with our internal environment. Like how are we talking to ourselves? Like what constraints are we putting on ourselves? First of all, as, as the coach, and then obviously our internal environment is going to dictate, dictate the external environment we set up then for our athletes. And then the two other, the two other points that came to my mind was you spoke about the athletes being as authentic as possible. And it always reminds me of like, I heard Paul check say this, this this one thing on an interview where he says when you start to work on your own self-awareness and work on yourself as an individual you become a safer person to be around and people want to be around you then and i i, I often say at the coaches that what athletes want is they want a safe place to go to train they want to know that when they're with a coach they don't have to bluff they don't have to fake they don't have to pretend something they're not. They know that this is a safe person to be around. This is a person I can open up to and I can be real to. 
and there there's some thoughts that just just came immediately to to mind there as as you were as you were speaking and in terms of language and, and how we oh sorry the very last point too was that actually this is probably the best thing i thought you said is that and this kind of goes back to our conversation before we hopped online about like how the universe works in contrast yin and yang you mm-hmm. you touched on there too that but there is times where you might strategically use your behavior or language to actually challenge the guys, like to maybe put them in a mood where it mightn't be as optimal for them to solve a problem because of whatever word you, whatever words or whatever behavior you did to initiate sort of a, that, that, that sort of current perception that they have at that moment. So I think that's very good too. It's kind of like, you know, you can still use a bit of, what would seem to be a negative coaching behavior as a tool for to prepare an athlete to say, listen, there's going to be times where an emerging property is coming on NFL Sunday. We're like, what are you going to do when the opposition starts calling out your family and your wife and your kids and your dogs? You know what I mean? So like you have to be able to still perform when, you know, from a perception standpoint, there could be some negative emotions going on. And I suppose this kind of comes back to James Smith and, James's whole thing about you know psychological preparation is where it's at. Like like if you can, it's it's like it's like when you look at like Sully the pilot who landed the plane, or you look at like the astronauts or first emergency responders, and people all say like, how did they not feel fear? And it's like they do. It's just mm-hmm. they're better at regulating it. So uh, that's my last point. That was the one I forgot, but just remember is that I think that's very important. What you brought up there is that it's not as if like we want the environment to always be just rainbows and roses there are times strategically where you, you need to be a little bit tough and so it's not it's not like you always need to be the coach that's friendly and puts the arm the hand the arm you know arm around the shoulder and make sure everything you say is perfect to keep them emotionally regulated and keep everything happy you still need to bring them to maybe some dark places so that they've been there and they know how to solve a problem in that emotional state as well so that's well, what and i think that goes to the safety part right like if there's a certain level of safe but uncertainty or yeah. safe complexity like they know the individual players know they're coming to my learning environment because they're going to get to interact with complex problems that they might not have the ability to solve some of that is within the local movement problem or the global movement problem that stands in front of them Mm -hmm. but some of that is internal as well like some of those problems that they have to go and solve are internal as well these loops if you will the circular causality is both within intrinsic as well as it extrinsic some extend out and some stay or completely remain within but they are being influenced from outside of them so such as players uh you know you brought up the the smack talk or trash talk thing we do that really frequently uh because we do want to kind of stretch them in into this challenge point that way as well because they're going to be there on an NFL Sunday and we don't want the first time that they face either that complex movement problem or that complex internal problem to be when 70,000 people are watching. Mm. We want it to be when there is some safety there involved that they I've seen players literally break down and cry during training sessions, NFL players, pro football players, you know, who are all pros in some of these cases and they will break down and cry. Like I don't want that or, or need that to happen. They don't want that or need that to happen on Sunday, even though it's the emotions are going to be that much more heightened at that time as well, when the whole world is watching. So I think you said a few things in there specifically around uh, the safety or the safe, the safe 
space that we create, even if it has uncertainty to it, or even if it has unpredictability to it, or even if it has messiness to it, it still can be safe. We just have to know who that player is as they enter that space and what we may be able to get on the outside uh, or on the backside of that when they come out of it. Mm. And I think that's really a piece or part of that too. If we think about what perception, cognition, and action coupling, so when those processes couple together, they form, uh, or how those processes couple, form what I would refer to as a a movement solution, right? A functional behavioral unit that is the movement solution. It's the way the human movement system as a complex adaptive system is organizing or assembling these processes to achieve goals within their within the world or environment. And a piece of those degrees of freedom that are emergent, those degrees of freedom that are organizing, th there's a tremendous amount of degrees of freedom that we're gonna get rep to rep day to day or week to week and month to month and year to year when we talk about emotions and the, the amount of degrees of freedom that are going to exist there. Talk about a complex adaptive system in and of itself. Any of our emotional regulations and where are those are, are originating in our subsystem and how then they will interact. We, we can't separate those because they're always there and they're always present. They're, they're omnipresent. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to something we touched on in that like, it's just something you can't weigh. So like for a lot of, a lot of left brain analytical individuals, like it really annoys them. Like, and it kind of goes back to that. Like it's almost the eye rolling cliche of, well, the best thing to do with your athletes is to say, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, and it's not, you're, you don't ask people, how are you doing for them to say, fine, you're doing it. Like you're not doing it to hear what they say. You're doing it to, to see how they say it. Yeah. Oh, it's the body language. It's, it's that, you know, the, that, that sort of, um, the the body talk of the individual that you're sort of trying to observe you know and i think uh you know people are also about ai and machines and listen obviously that technology is going to come and it's it's going to be a there's going to be some sort of synergy there but I, I think that's the human element that we i just don't know if now i don't know enough about artificial intelligence but i i you know i, I don't know could a could could a machine or a robot ever learn that aspect of of sort of that connection between a human you know well, and, and that type of energy exchange that we know happens within the world, you know, even if we can't quantify it or we have zero means of quantifying it or even zero desire to quantify that down to that minute molecule level, but we know that this distributed patterns of energy exist around all of us and we're constantly exchanging yeah. it. And sort of what you said before in regards to sort of being in this positive place or this negative place, like we're going to have to exist in both of them and we have to learn how to exchange energy with the world mm. in both of them as well to understand the disposition of those immediate more micro problems as well as in bigger, more global macro problems as well. Yeah. So I think, you know, there's, there's a lot there and there's something that you said um, in regards to reading body language and being aware of some what someone's really kind of internal state might be without them telling us. Uh, when I The first time I went to Altus, now this was in 2014, 2015, somewhere in that uh, period of time, that's when I made the transition to start meeting my athletes out in the parking lot. After having watched the Altus learning environment and watching the way that Dan Path behaves within there, uh, in the way that he interacts with each respective athlete, I was I left truly inspired by that because it 
really kind of forced me to be a better reader of those things, to be a better reader of someone's personal energy or the tone of their voice or the, the things that they were saying when I asked them questions or the body language that they uh, portrayed when I did ask them that question. That's why I started meeting players in the parking lot when they arrived, just to get a better beat on who they are off the field before we get on it. Big time, yeah. So second topic was rehab. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you, I don't know like is have you dealt with many rehab cases, and if so, sort of how's that gone around and your thought process around it? Because you obviously it's a it's such a massive. It's just there's so much that goes into it, and I, I can appreciate it a little bit more because about four or five weeks ago I got a slight dislocation in my shoulder, and it was kind of the first time I really had an injury and. I've spoken to James Fitzgerald, you know, about like his major injury that he had when he was younger. And you've, you've told me about some of the injuries you had back in your bodybuilding days. And I suppose anyone listening to this who's had an injury and they have a huge sort of identity with their physical body, be it that they're a bodybuilder or an athlete of some sort, it, it really can like psychologically mess with your mind, you know, mm -hmm. when like you realize, holy shit, I never really considered like that. I'm a human that that is physically active rather than physical activity is like all I do, you know, putting all your eggs in one basket. So it's like, there's just so much to rehab. It really made me, made me appreciate that mental aspect of when an injury happens to an athlete, like a lot of identity can get stripped away. And it's, it's an aspect that probably doesn't get enough appreciation, but obviously then with rehab, like the classic rehab is like, you know, these milestones and it's very planned and it's very, linear <laughs> and as you've alluded to many times life is non-linear which is i just love i love non-linearity i just i just love it i just think it's like even when like you're in personal states of when you're maybe slightly more depressed uh, and then there's states where you're more happy you know when you have the awareness of this and life is not linear this is all part of it it kind of takes the weight or burden off your shoulders to not mm -hmm. be so hard on yourself at times but uh Anyway, I'm rambling here. Just when it comes to rehab and, again, everything that you do, what comes to your mind? Yeah, great question and obviously a big topic. You know, I try not to obviously, number one, overstep uh, my responsibilities or roles with the respective players. So usually when they uh, get injured, at least to a major threatening level, uh, to a major degree, uh, it'll that will determine what my role or involvement will be within their process, right? Um, obviously, there's going to be multiple parties where hopefully we're not existing as silos, but instead we're integrating together uh, to lock arms to check certain boxes, certainly, mm -hmm. but also to play certain roles or to be different spokes for that player as the wheel. And so the return to performance that you mentioned earlier on the onset of the question, I think is key because usually that's where I step in or the major spot that I stand when we're talking about someone uh, going through the rehabilitation process when they've been threatened by a major injury. Um, and, and to me, I start, at least with my individual perspective, we're trying to reframe it to a certain degree for players. A lot of times when players go through one of these major career-threatening injuries, or even if it's just a smaller one that they know they're gonna get through, their goal, I think, becomes misguided right off the bat. They immediately believe, because of their identity that was pre-injury, they think, well, I just got to get back to that level, right? And I try to reframe it, and this is going to sound somewhat odd to many people out there, 
I try to reframe it and tell them you're never going to be that person again, but we don't want you to be that person again. Like we're all always adapting, right? Whether sometimes we're going to lose physical characteristics. Let's say we're talking about players who have gone through a long enough period of time or life cycle within their career. They're going to lose certain physiological or physical characteristics, but it's likely that they're going to still be a better performer years down the way after losing some of those things. Look at Richard Sherman in the Super Bowl. Look at Adrian Peterson this year. Uh, look at Kobe Bryant down the stretch of his career. God rest his soul. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, you can still change for the better when you go through these things, whether they're from injury or whether they're from father time. We're going to not be, not be the same ever again. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And so I think by getting players to kind of grasp onto that concept, it changes their perspective as well as their expectations of where it is that we ultimately want to guide ourselves to go or where ultimately we want to facilitate their journey towards going. And so I start there first and foremost. Using that, that injury, no matter what level or magnitude that injury is of at, to use that as a learning opportunity, just as if the player just doesn't have a movement solution to a local or micro problem that they faced out in the learning environment. It just happens to be this piece of adversity if you allow it to be something that creates adverse conditions. But instead, if we use it as an opportunity for growth, a springboard towards further adaptability, a springboard towards deeper evolution of one's skill craft, I think there's actually some positive that comes with it. And, and not I think, I know there's some positive that comes with it. I've seen it in players in the past. They not only are able to grow within their skill and within their execution, but they're able to grow so much more as humans when they go through it. Sort of to speak to your point in the question, this ebb and flow, yin and yang, positive and negative, like it all balances itself out. And we see players have that opportunity then for growth in all avenues or ways as well and they become a better version of themselves before they they were injured as well as far as the actual return to performance process of course that is all contextual dependent uh, so it's all n equals one so it depends on the individual it depends on the injury it depends on where they are in their in their life cycle and in their career but a few things that probably I do much differently than many other people do in that role of return to play is I introduce way more safe uncertainty again than people usually are willing to go. And, and of course, that's a fine line. I'm not trying to say to throw them to the wolves and, and just let chaos uh, kind of eat them up and spit them out. But I allow them to be put back in that place that they felt they were at when they were an athlete who was playing frequently or who was non-injured, right? Like I want them to still become a more functional, adaptable movement problem solver day in and day out, regardless if they're three months post-op from an ACL that's supposed to end their career or whether they're, uh, you know, just a few weeks away from getting back out on field in that return to performance process. I throw them into somewhat more representative tasks, probably much earlier than most people will. And again, I say that, and I hope listeners sort of take that with a grain of salt. 
I still scale the information and I still scale the complexity of the problem that they are faced or tasked with solving. But I think it's important to turn them in and get their frame of mind, their form of life back oriented and centered on being a problem solver first and foremost. Because I think oftentimes in traditional rehabilitation procedures, we wait till the very end for that. And it's almost like they're so far removed from being an athlete. They're so far removed from being a competitor and they're so far removed from being a problem solver that they have to refine themselves. And instead I try to throw them into that pretty much as soon as I'm allowed to get my hands on them. And again, I scale the information and I scale the complexity. I'm not saying I throw them right into the most representative of tasks, but what I do do is put them back into problem solving at every opportunity that I can. And usually that entails them having to perceive something outside of themselves. It's not just them. It's not just their movement action. It's a movement behavior and a movement skill that is organized in response to a somewhat unpredictable, a somewhat deep and rich environment that I have them exist within. So it could be a really slow moving opponent. It could be a somewhat stationary opponent, but I put them right back in with opponents. And it, and it seems weird for most people to hear that, but I see so few people doing it. And then all of a sudden, you know, they're three weeks away from supposedly being returned to play and they haven't actually returned to any sort of form of performance that they don't feel any confidence. Uh, they're not comfortable being able to solve problems. They're not able to handle the complexity of that information. And all of a sudden it is chaotic for them. And Boom, lo and behold, you know, we have a lot of setbacks. We have a lot of regressions oftentimes that happens in those traditional ways that it's being done. So I feel if we just turn them into a problem solver, the opportunity, the first opportunity that we get, whatever that means to you, I think that that's where we have to start. And I just see very few people doing that. They start to go and start to check those boxes that you mentioned, where it has these very linear time scales, and you know, the human movement system just doesn't work that way. Number one, like you already insinuated, but number two, the player themselves sort of feels like they're just a robot going through the motions. Like I just got to get to my next, my next signpost. But instead when they do hit that signpost and they do check those boxes, there's a pretty good likelihood due to the nonlinearity of the human movement system that they might come back down at some point. And now if we've geared our whole mindset around, checking that box yeah. and then they do, but they have to regress in some way because the next day they don't have control of their emotions or their knee did flare up or any host of a number of different things. Now all of a sudden they feel defeated again. And so it's almost like if we maybe buck the trend on some of the traditional dogmatic ways of thinking in rehabilitation, I think the return to performance would be a reality um, throughout that process and it would be constantly building as opposed to here we're you know this is where we're at right now and once we check all these boxes then they move into this next phase which has these totally different types of tasks and then once they check all these boxes now they go up in another linear step in most cases it just doesn't work that way at least with a high enough level of athlete um, it's going to be a whole lot more circular uh, winding roads uh, to get back to that quote-unquote performance. And in fact, anytime a player gets injured, I believe right off the bat, 
that they can and will be a better performer than they were pre-injury. And I think it starts there. I, I know we did discuss this last time we, we spoke, um, but I, I just feel it might be a good topic to touch on again. Remember I asked you, like, you know, regards to representative design, there are certain sports, American football being one, rugby is another one that comes to mind, where, you know, to get the acquired repetitions in, to get very close to the actual sport environment, it's it's a bit of a catch-22 and that you can't really, because of the, the actual mechanical load that actually it would put on the body and the potential for actual injury. So just when it comes to certain sports where, like, obviously representative design and being as close to the actual sport environment is very, very important, how do you navigate around that in terms of getting enough repetitions in so that we feel there is a transfer and a carryover, but not so much that we risk injury or we're putting too much actual mechanical load into joints and tissues, et cetera. Yeah. And, and that's a wonderful question. Uh, regardless of where one is at in their learning journey, uh, whether they're a lower level of mastery or whether they're a high level of mastery performer, obviously that's still going to impact um, this design of this learning environment and what it looks, feels, acts, and behaves like. And, and if we can, be certain from an Egan Brunswick idea with representative task design that what we're doing in training is sampling enough of what's going to happen in the competition That's that we hope for it to transfer to. And so whether it's again, return to performance or in a rehabilitation type of setting, or whether it's just in skill acquisition or skill refinement, we're constantly trying to look at sort of this balance of stretching the performer's grip on the range of affordances that they're going to be presented to yeah. them from the problems that they're going to face. And there's, from 2016 and now uh, to 2019, 2020, I believe that the idea of skill acquisition periodization is going to start to be more and more, there's going to be more discussion around it. Uh, Farrell and Robinson put in, put out a, an article called the skill acquisition periodization framework in 2016. And then recently a number of other authors kind of jumped on board too and, and started to talk about this periodization of skill training in this way. That when we look at the competitive year, you know, you and I both know uh, as strength and conditioning coaches or physical preparation coaches um, at some level, we have always been inundated with all these periodization models and ideas oriented around them, but they're usually going to be centered on physiological stressors. And of course, when we're talking about the performer, such as an American football or rugby or any sport for that matter, of course, there is some sort of physiological peaking that we desire to occur, right? Or a physiological acquisition of these respective qualities. But when we talk about skill acquisition or skill refinement, typically those ideas of periodization, such as specificity or overload, and then phasing hasn't really been discussed all that much until recently. And so I think the more we start thinking about those ideas in regards to specificity, because when we talk about specificity, that really truly is representative task design. Yeah, yeah. How closely does the training or practice test resemble that which they're going to face in the competition arena? that they don't always have to exist in that place of highest specificity, highest complexity. In fact, if they're always there, 
it's likely that they perceptually and cognitively may not be able to handle it there and they will quickly get burned out just like we would if we were constantly maxing out in the weight room mm. or constantly maxing out on the track. So it becomes a fine balance, but we have to start with these concepts and these ideas, I think, to a certain degree and really try to understand what our intention is for that respective session and at that respective moment in time based on the competitive um, when the competitive arena is going to be facing us or the competitive phase, if you will. And then from there, of course, overload is constantly talked about because in order to get growth in from a physiological standpoint, you have to overload a certain amount of time to a certain degree. And yet most people in skill acquisition haven't figured that part out yet. They, that's why the whole idea of some of those implications that we find from traditional models, such as performing more perfect reps or perfect, you know, um, rehearsal or rote rehearsal of this perfect technical idealistic model has never made sense to me either. Like, how do we expect them to grow within their skill execution if they're always repeating the same problem or always repeating the same quote unquote solution, but really it's just dynamics. And so these ideas of skill acquisition periodization, Robbie, I think start to give us some of that insight that many of those uh, periodization frameworks that were utilized oriented around physiology might have to start being applied or at least discussed from a skill acquisition and refinement perspective as well. And so the few take homes that we have then is that the movement problem in the learning environment doesn't always have to look, feel, act, and behave like the game does. But it has to, in my opinion, for the higher level performers, represent it frequently enough so they are able to have the opportunities to learn and grow and be, have their attention and intentions educated around the information that's going to be present in those problems. Mm -hmm. So they don't become attuned to non-specifying information sources. So they have to be exposed to the information in the problems and the affordances that those problems present that the competition will frequently enough so they can become perceptually sensitive and attuned to it to couple and organize their movement behaviors around it. So, and this is a topic that I've been discuss discussing a lot in American football circles right now over the last like month or so, because a year or two ago, let's just call it two years, I started encouraging people, much like on your podcast and much like on any podcast or my blog, to incorporate more problems to be solved, problems that contained aliveness to them, uh, where it had an opponent. And I said, I, I remember on a number of cases or instances of simply encouraging people to use more cat and mouse or more mirroring type activities at a base level to start there. And all of a sudden I started seeing people do this because they were just following along with some of the things that I encouraged them to do and say. Um, and what I realized is that many of the fidelity or the level of fidelity of both the problem and the solution weren't similar or representative enough to that which way it was happening out on the competitive arena in these interactions, in these one versus one dyads. And I like, I like started pumping the brakes on it for myself personally because I realized I had done them a disservice by encouraging them to do this task that much more. And I saw players who then, once they got out into the competitive arena on an American football field, and it was 11 on 11, and it was no longer one on one, 
some of those movement strategies and some of those perception action couplings that those players developed in these one versus one problem and solution dynamics were actually not only not transferring positively is they were transferring negatively. Like they weren't able to attune to the information everywhere in the world. They were just so fixated and focused on just the immediate opponent in front of them that they weren't concerned with what that opponent's buddies were doing or what their own buddies and their own teammates were doing. And so this is my long winded way of saying like, we just have to, with every task that we design, ask ourselves the question, whether it's in practice or whether it's in competition is, what is the nature of that information that it stands there, that exists there in that problem? And how does it serve to guide our movement behaviors and our organization of perception, cognition, and action around? And we have to exist there in training as frequently as we can to the place where the two transfer to one another, the two correspond to one another. And really when we think about it, Robbie, you know, Sif and Verkoshansky and others who had talked about dynamic correspondence and, you know, special exercises and, and uh, specific exercises really were just speaking of that but at a biomechanical level. We're just talking about applying it in a more movement skill oriented fashion here now in this way. So it's, it's constantly, you know, to answer your question in another long winded answer, um, it, it's, it's certainly a balance because I can't have players get tackled each and every day out in my learning environment. But what I have to do is allow them to have the opportunity to interact with the information and the problem that would exist there if they could potentially be tackled. Mm. So when defenders are chasing them, even though that defender may not tackle them in my learning environment, they are behaving as such as if they were going to. So that performer who's on the offensive side and who's carrying the ball and who's trying to connect themselves to the information that exists there knows that that threat and that challenge and that information exists in a way that it will on the NFL Sunday as well. Yeah, it reminds me of um, you know reading about the tennis players and the the the, the cricket batters. And they would be receiving balls from machines and how yeah. no, you know, like no transfer where they, they needed that sort of, they needed it, they needed it to be competing. Like, so the, in terms of the cricketer, like he needed actually a person to bowl the ball because of the information he received off the shape of the body's, uh, the, the person's body, the bowler's body as they were bowling the ball. And then with tennis, obviously the person who was getting the ball hit back to them, they need, like they used information from how the body was moving to. And yeah. And as you alluded to there too, it's, as you were speaking, it, what came to my mind was this sort of, that sort of spectrum of specificity at one end, but then variation at the other end, where we live on that sort of spectrum in terms of balance, where we know that we do need variation in the system for obviously the system to grow and to develop. And, and then obviously to, as well, like Franz Bosch talks about like variation as a different form of overload to the system, like cognitive overload, whereas like everybody talks about overload in terms of quantitative measures in, in the physical realm when it comes to like, you know, strength development or any sort of bio, biomotor ability, but, uh, or physical capacity or quality. But I suppose, yeah, it's, it's just about having enough variation to help, you know, spread open and develop that movement map and that movement toolbox would not be so far away from it that like the transfer is little to none. I, well, I, on that note, I, I do want to jump in there because I think it segued really nicely to the first question that you had in regards to uh, return to performance or the earlier question in regards yeah. to return to performance, because that's one thing 
that I think that I do considerably different to get them closer to return to performance is we harness that variability, whether it's within the human movement system and its inherent variability mm -hmm. that we know exists because of these large amounts of degrees of freedom of the system. I want them to exist in that space where as long as it's within safe uh, regions or bandwidth, but also then in the problem, in the problem presenting a variable enough situation for us to allow uh, a movement solution that emerges to be a degeneres or abundant or variable one so they can get control across a wider variety of strategies and solutions as well. So it definitely goes hand in hand, the problem and the solution and the dynamics of both of them meeting with maybe more diverse uh, conditions or in diverse spaces. So the, the past year I've done, I've done a lot of study in just to basic anatomy physiology. I actually have my physiology book opened right here. I'm on chapter 13, spinal, <laughs> spinal cord, spinal cord and nerves. I've gone all the way from chapter one up to this. Um, but when I was going through, uh, it's actually the next chapter. It's the brain and the cranial nerves, but it, you know, it talks about, um, S1, so the somatosensory region, and then just immediately posterior to that, you have the association centers. And the reason I bring that up is it, it talks about like whenever you your somatosensory system is taking in information, it'll obviously it'll take in that information and process it, and it'll actually see mm, is there anything we've experienced previously that we can that we can um, sort of recognize this emergent property against. And it kind of, it, it makes a case then for why veritability and general physical preparation at a younger age is so important because it gives you these wider movement landscapes and roadmaps to be able to solve more problems than as you develop as an athlete. Now, I had a great conversation with Mike Tashir, who's a powerlifter. And he's a very cerebral powerlifter. Like he actually, he has, he has taken Dr. Bonnerchuk's system and applied it to powerlifters. So the, the Bonnerchuk trains system. And he's very influenced too by Noel's um, constraints uh, model as well. So you know, he's very much about organism, environment, tasks. Like in powerlifting, which to most people is a very like, God, there's so many little variables. It's, it's inside. It doesn't compete against any weather conditions. It's the same tree lifts like, you know, but he appreciates, listen, you don't complete a squat the same way. Your emotional state, this all changes the skill acquisition. So he's very deep in it. Mike, it. Mike did not do a back squat for two years because of some back issues. And all he's done was front squatting. And we got into this conversation about like Dan Pfaff speaking about chronic overload syndrome and acute relieving syndrome. You know, we spoke about that. So Dan talks about where like these athletes would do the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And eventually they start to plateau and plateau and plateau, diminish returns. And then they might put like just a, like the coach says, all right, let's just do something completely different, completely different. And it's acute relieving syndrome. So we touched a little bit on that. But then I started talking to him about, well, my study into the somatosensory system associated centers and degrees of freedom we got into. And it was if like, as we were talking, we were saying like, you'd front squat it so much and your back squat probably, you know, there's obviously going to be a residual effect there that you back squat so much throughout your life, which hadn't done it in two years. There was a massive like relieving syndrome and like, cause he had a day, he had years and years of back squatting up until that point. But then he went to front squatting exclusively and he never really front squatted. And like, we were kind of having this discussion that you probably added some type of extra landscape or movement opportunity facilitation you know that so what i mean is like the set smart sensory when he went back to front squat and the, the the associated centers now had more sort of they had more 
answers to certain questions from Dissolve and his back squat because then we start PR on his back squat and he's like I haven't trained my back squat in two years mm-hmm. he's like why am I P-? like this makes no sense so like we kind of got into this like idea that for him it could be just he opened up more movement opportunities more degrees of freedom and the and so this is where I'm gonna is now that if when there's more movement opportunities available more degrees of freedom and they're and they're controllable the brain the master regulator feels safe if it feels safer it'll allow you to express more force because we all have, we all have, we're, we're all capable of producing more force or force output and we're much more capable of being stronger in any given moment than we usually are. It's just that our brain and the protective mechanism of neural inhibition doesn't allow us to do it. Afraid that it'll injure ourselves like tear muscles. So we kind of got into this conversation that maybe by opening up more movement opportunities through, you know, movement variability and whatnot, acute relieving syndrome and, variations of exercises even no matter how experienced you are open up more degrees of freedom stabilizing those degrees of freedom to a certain degree then as well by the acquisition of doing the movement that may be too then it, it reduced threat in the system which allowed then more force especially for him as a power different squat so like he went down this whole rabbit hole and he just goes i'm gonna get a physiology textbook now looking at smart sensory but it just I, I i had no question there it was just a story i wanted to tell you about that even within a sport like powerlifting and someone like mike Tashir, like he can see the benefit of seeing his sport through the lens of like Newell's model and this appreciation of perception, actual coupling and emergent properties. Like he talks about emergent properties all the time. So it was just a story I wanted to share with you on that. And if you well, want, and I, I appreciate uh, that. I have not listened to that episode. I certainly. Oh, no, it, that, that was actually, that was actually a, a private talk we had. Oh, okay. Well now, now you just teased us uh, at all, but you gave the, the synopsis of it anyway, but uh, no, I, I didn't know that he followed uh, some of those types of ideas or the ideologies uh, existent around ecological dynamics and constraints-led approach and so on and so forth. But, um, I mean, it makes sense. I, I usually uh, will say that degeneracy precedes mm. dexterity, right? And what I mean there is degeneracy, for those of you who are listening out there who haven't heard Robbie and I talk about it before, degeneracy is not in the negative connotation or negative term. Degeneracy in the movement science world essentially just means we have more ways to solve that respective problem, yeah. right? Like there's more variability within our strategies or solutions or the way that we organize the movement solutions that still have functional equivalence. So they still will have no slip or degradation of performance. So it might be uh, the use of a power cut or a crossover cut or a lunge cut in my world, or it may be a front squat or a back squat uh, or a kettlebell squat or a deadlift uh, variety in uh, the powerlifting world, right? But degeneracy, this idea that degeneracy or abundance within the movement system is equates to a more healthy, uh, more ready, more robust movement system then that can precede dexterity or the ability to solve a wider variety of movement situations, movement problems under situations and under different conditions. And really that's what he found as well, just based on what you were talking about, that the performance actually increased across situations because what he was doing were opening up the degrees of freedom and more opportunities to act in different ways. Yeah. And yeah. so it, it makes sense, even in a really repeatable, really close sport problem, such as powerlifting. This is the exact example, if you remember back to uh, the last time I presented at Altus in regards to the use of repetition without repetition for track and field. For track and field, yeah. I yeah. believe that there's yeah. something to that. Instead, we look at 
uh, many times within traditional pedagogy, we look at just repeating things that we, when we know we're only going to have to do something within a certain small limited bandwidth. But I think we should open up that bandwidth considerably and we get better at the one that is specialized. Yeah, it was so funny because in that presentation, the one I remember watching that, I watched it a few times. And it, it was like you kind of keep reminding the uh, the audience you're speaking to. You're like, now I know I deal with team sports, but <laughs> this is so applicable to track and field. Just so you know, yeah, it was just like it was like you were really trying to beat that into some of the coaches' head because I think a lot of them, or you maybe felt a lot of them were like, yeah, but like, is this applicable to like you know clothes chains like track and you're like, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, there's still an environment out there. That environment is still changing. You are you are constantly exchanging information and energy with that environment yeah. uh, that problem disposition even if it is just running down a runway of a, of a track and and uh hitting a, a a board to jump into a pit like it's still different every single time you do it yeah it, you know it's funny too just uh off our conversation about emotion or not and like how most like your, your emotional regulation can obviously change your 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 you know your emerging properties your perception actual coupling your skill acquisition etc it, it was actually john kylie who was one of the first individuals who who really sort of brought that to my attention i, I saw john present back in 2016 with martin bingazer in limerick and mm-hmm. you know uh john has that famous paper now kind of you know but the sorts of sort of you know everyone talks about like he bashes periodization and of course everybody like takes their own sort of you know perception of what he wrote and they kind of run with it so like all the periodization people said oh he says periodization is bullshit and like he never said that he says you need a plan it's just that you know that your plan has to be fluid and there's going to it's change it's going to change it has to because it's humans genuinely but what was really one really good point that john brings up like or one thing he tries to stress is that like this is kind of what john is like he's kind of like like this is not how john would say it but this is what he's trying to get across is like all i'm saying is that this is what we can't do. We can't say that this input will 100% give us this output because in between the input and the output, you have this subjective human experience. Mm-hmm. So he was just like, for instance, and he goes, okay, here's one example. Here's the input and here's what can like mess it up. He's like, your emotions. <laughs> so he's just like, you know, like he just, he's again, just kind of what we touched on. Like he's like, two guys doing you know and i'm air quoting here the same activity like a squat or a sprint or a jump and they're both completely in different places because they're two completely different humans both chronically from their culture their society their, their their social economic status religious beliefs if they have any ideological beliefs and then down to those acute factors of what they had for breakfast their sleep that day did they have with their spouse do you know what i mean did, the, did their favorite song just call in the gym like for instance they can be in the gym and like this this reminds me of Altus. I when I was walking into Altus, I always know, I always knew. Sorry, that was terrible English. I always knew who was in the gym by the music. So I'd walk in, and if it was rap music, I'd be like, ah, oh, you know, it's going to be the, the black sprinting group, and it's going to be the combine guys usually. Where if it where if it was country music, it was like, oh, all the white guys are here. You know I mean? and, and, and I mean that in the least racial way. I know yes, how yes. the world is right now, but you know what I mean. So like. That that could even like regulate how an output or an input can affect an output, like even by like the music. And it's something as simple as that is going to change the level of determinancy of that respective system. Yeah. It's inputs and outputs. Absolutely. But yet 
we believe that we are that much smarter of a master <laughs> manipulator of training variables to get everyone to work uh, linearly uh, and get some respective outcome or process of execution in a certain way. It's unreal. Uh, I mean, it's ridiculous or asinine to even think of that we would think that we are up here, you know, playing master puppeteer um, to that degree or level of functionality. We are God. Yeah, listen, <laughs> listen uh, we'll, we'll wrap up here. I know that I had one of the last question about like nutraceuticals and all that, but I'll, I'll let you go now. The, the, the word I was thinking of was that we know that the nervous system is, has plasticity, but there, there's arguments about whether we have neuro, neurogenesis, meaning that we can grow new neurons, even though it has been shown and said earlier on the hippocampus, but other areas of the brain doesn't seem that you can re regenerate neurons. It's still an ongoing debate, but plasticity definitely exists. That's where you can make new synaptic connections. So have you looked into anything that can help facilitate that from like a nutraceutical standpoint or even pharmaceutical, or, or have you spoke to anyone about this? Yeah, most of it is speaking to other individuals because obviously that's outside of my realm of expertise, but yet it obviously still impacts um, myself as well as my craft and, and the athletes that partner with me too. A big one right now is obviously oriented around obviously the, the elephant in the room in the National Football League in regards to head injuries specifically Yeah, big time. and, and what concussions do uh, to perception, action coupling, or problem solving opportunities, I should say, for for me and, and for my guys are the ways that I look at it. Uh, but then also, you know, the safety and longevity and the function of that brain long term. So that's something that we certainly have explored and, and gone down certain paths with. In regards to the neuroplasticity, and essentially what you're referring to there is, is things that could assist or supplement learning. It's, I, I at least every, all the search that I've done, I have talked to certain neuroscientists about it. Um, I haven't talked to as many uh, nutrition-oriented individuals as I probably could or should in order to try to address that. But of course, in the National Football League, it's always you're always trying to stay one step ahead, certainly. But on the same token or note, we always have to be careful in regards to what we're putting in our mouths or our bodies mm. in the national football league, because that would be the last thing that you'd want to end your career, which would be passing uh, or non-passing of a drug test simply because you took something that was off of that list. And so it's always a, a really slippery slope when we're talking about supplementation or um, something that is going to be auxiliary to assist any process, right? If it has a high enough level of efficacy, you can almost be certain that the NFL is testing for it in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. But that being said, I haven't found anything necessarily that be besides um, some negligible type of results here or there, little little bits and pieces. Now, granted, every little bit can help or count, but we do have to concern ourselves so much at high-level professional sports in regards to intaking something that could make you piss dirty and it wasn't necessarily worth it in the whole scheme of things. Mm -hmm. So we almost have this like bigger rule, or at least I do personally because I don't work with the teams specifically, in allowing them and their team nutritionists to basically say yay or nay what someone could or could not be on, just knowing that we're trying to kind of safeguard the athlete towards maybe just experimenting with the use of something that may or may not have positive effects. I haven't found enough that could give a big enough um, benefit to still have that risk there. 
if the NFL hasn't already tested for it, if it's not already on the list, um, if it's still like undergoing testing or experimentation, we, we definitely want to avoid it when, when we, when we find something like that. I, I know I'd have to go back and, and reread, but I, I remember reading Rick Brunner's, uh, Rick Brunner's oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, explosive is it explosive ergonomics is that the name yes of it? I think that's what it is called something like that something like that yeah it's it's um you get it off Yost's website ultimately yeah I, I have it I just I thought I might have it on my shelf right behind me but it might be in a but I, it's funny because my shelves are here and I know it's somewhere down there too so Rick if you're listening I have I actually have your other book too the the one he brought out like in 1990 and it was funny because now Yosef has it on the website and like he has it like it's it's not that expensive but when I had to get it it was like nowhere could be found and I bought it for like a hundred dollars of Amazon so when I saw Yosef <laughs> now I was like oh for God's sake that was the way but uh but sorry the reason I brought up that book is uh I'm very sure it's called Explosive Ergonomics um was because the sort of theme in that book was that when it used to be the old Soviet Union they were very sort of specific about the nutritional schemes and protocols they'd use with their athletes, depending on what was the predominant sort of um, goal of the train at the time. So like, you know, they were like, if it was, you know, hypertrophy, there'd be a lot of work done around, you know, um, leucine and the amino acids, where if it was more power speed, a lot of obviously creatine. Now I know people listen to that go, well, that's not that groundbreaking, but you got to remember like, this was like the seventies and eighties. Like, so like that stuff was well known now, but like back then, like they were, they were well ahead of the game. But then he was talking about, I'm really sure like, he, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't his exact word, but I remember there was other things in there like wouldn't, it was heavy neural stuff so you could think of like neural processing but like they were taking fish oils and they were making sure that their like omegas were in proper place and again maybe not groundbreaking now but like pre the Berlin wall coming down like this was all fucking Mm -hmm. revolutionary stuff you know so it just it just made me think about that aspect too from trying to maybe facilitate sort of more obviously cognitive sort of um, processing. I suppose you could, you could you could take some stuff maybe from the health realm too. You know, stuff like about eating for cognitive health that, that could possibly be something to look forward to. Even though we we obviously I know you appreciate this, and a lot of listeners here have heard me speak about this with numerous guests. That we we do know that health and sport are not the same thing. But so I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is you could probably take maybe aspects from what is cognitively healthy from nutritional and see if that would obviously have some facilitation but it's interesting it's interesting all right because i've obviously heard that sleep helps with the consolidation of information too so yeah. big time well and then on that note so my mom owned a nutrition store uh when i was growing up so obviously i had always my brother and i were always dabbling in all kinds of supplements and actually ironically enough right before my dad passed away uh so my dad passed away from alzheimer's and parkinson's and we were meeting with uh, a neurologist uh, yeah. kind of on the, you know, in the early onset of both of those very harsh diseases, of course. And I started uh, orienting my conversation with the neurologist around this exact topic, in fact. And my, and my mom's like, starts getting in on the conversation as well. So this just brings me back to this just weird memory. And wow. my dad, who's sort of like going in and out of levels of consciousness there, my mom and I are having a conversation with the neurologist in regards to what types of supplements or nutrition habits can assist in cognitive function and where they're meeting with a neurologist in regards to my dad's deteriorating uh, neurology. And uh, it just kind of brought me back to that moment because I think there's really what we do know in regards to whether it's the brain and the cognitive function and how it helps to solve problems 
it's sort of this idea that we use within movement problem solving and skill acquisition as well. Mm -hmm. Like you should exercise the brain in the way that you want it to behave or the ways that you want it to be forced to solve problems as well. So across a variety of situations and across a variety of conditions, and that will keep your cognitive health and function at a higher level than probably anything that we can necessarily do to assist it. And I think it's in the, the reason why I bring that up is that's essentially what the neurologist, now this is four or five years ago uh, when we were having this conversation that, that jogged my memory to. But as I was having this conversation with him and I discussed it, he's like, regardless of what we know about how the brain functions in regards to movement skill execution, the one thing that I would tell you, because obviously he was very uh, information processing based as opposed to ecological dynamics oriented, he said, keep doing what you're doing in regards to having them solve the problems. And I think the brain is going to do what you need for it to do um, by presenting it with that wider variety of problems. But I think it kind of goes back to some of the themes of our conversation here today, whether it's in return to performance and return to play, whether it's in power lifters or track and field athletes or American football players, or whether it's in uh, regards to keeping your brain healthy and giving getting everything you want out of it it really comes down to solving a breath of problems yeah it makes you just think as you're speaking there meditation's role of indirectly improving you know uh perception and action coupling with athletes because you know just uh you know what that can maybe do from facilitating that you know that psychological preparation that i sort of touched on that jane smith would sort of term psychological preparation obviously you know opening up giving you more bandwidth to help solve solutions because because uh, again like meditation is sort of like it's the mental gym it's funny i had this conversation with mike robertson too that and listen i'm guilty of this too that we're very very biased to the, the training of our physical body again because it's so much more tangible you can see it in a mirror you can weigh it like you know you can take your body composition you can stand on a scale you can see numbers go up on lists in the gym whereas you know the actual training of your brain you know and and because the reason why I, myself and mike got onto this is that i was saying to mike i'd say not that i'd say but i feel that within you know a certain number of years saying that oh i'm gonna go see my counselor will just be like people saying oh, i'm gonna to go to my personal trainer that's the way it's gonna be like it, it's not gonna be this thing oh why are, you, why are you going to a counselor it's gonna be like oh i'm going i'm going i'm going for my brain training session do you know what i mean yeah it's gonna it's gonna get there and like that's probably why so many people are not why but it, it's probably one of the reasons why there is a lot of mental health issues or a lot of people are have issues with mental resiliency it's kind of like of course you do because you never train your brain it's just like it's like it's no different to like have muscle atrophy like if i bring someone into a gym who's never lifted a weight and it's like oh you're really weak it's like of course they've never they've never done that like your brain is the same in terms of needs well and there's so many like you are getting to there's so many more stigmas that go along with it yeah. like for as far as means and methods to be able to take care of that or keep that health where it is that you want it to be again, whether it's the actual cognitive function or whether it's your mental state mm -hmm. and your emotional state playing into that. Obviously we can never separate the two systems yeah. from one another. Uh, just like we can't separate perception and action, right? We can't separate the emotions uh, in the psychology and the brain function from each other. Those are all processes that are intertwined and integrated and they certainly will impact our performance, not only on the field, but again, outside of it and off of it as well. In the state that we're in is obviously going to be highly important to the hopefully the performance state that we can achieve but i think you're right um at least i've been in trying to encourage that again through some of the things that uh 
I've gone through with players personally, mm. uh, trying to encourage more players to seek out things proactively ahead of time in that regard. Yeah. And because I think it is one of those things, you know, my sister works as a counselor, so I get, you know, get to hear some of this or have some of this dialogue and conversation. And it's, it's crazy on how much of a negative stigma it still has, not only within sport, but across the entire society. Like going, going to see the counselor, you know, like you, you get like an eye roll and like, oh, what's wrong with you? You know, but you can say, well, I'm going to see my personal trainer. People are like, good for you. You know, keep it up. Yeah. Nice New Year's yeah. resolution. Go get them, cowboy, you know. <laughs> it's yeah. and it's, like, why, why is there such a, a separation there? I don't know. Yeah, and it's, it's like that old saying, like the, the best cure is prevention. And just wrapping up here too, it reminds me of, I, I said this on a previous episode too, but there was an interview with, a, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, this um I want to call her a woman, but she's young. Like she's like my age. So it makes her feel, but she's a, this uh, woman girl. She's not a girl though, but it's like, you know, kind of woman makes her feel old. <laughs> uh, but uh, her, her name's, her name's uh, Adi Cashew. Um, she owns WAG working against gravity, which is an online nutritional company. And she was being interviewed on a podcast and she was kind of talking about like that. She goes to see, a, um, you know, a psychologist, a counselor. And, uh, and like the whole point, the whole reason she brought up was to say that, you know, people would often say to her, oh, why, you know, is there something going on? She goes, no, like, it's, it's like, I'm being proactive. Like I do yeah. this, I, I do this for prevention so that I don't have to go to the counselor when some, when the shit is, when shit's gone wrong. Like, you know, she's like, this is pure. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, pre it's prehabilitation. Like, you know, it's like the prehab before, you know, it's, it's just about, doing all your physical activities to make sure you don't get injured, you know, from a physical aspect, it's the same thing with your brain. Like, and I remember when I heard her say that, I was like, it makes so much sense. And that's why I was saying to Mike Robertson, you know, probably in like, or please, hopefully, you know, in, in, you know, the, the near future in five, 10, 15 years, it'll, it'll just be like people saying, I'm going to the gym physically for my physical body. I'm going to the counseling you know, for my, for my brain training, you know, or maybe there will be actual places where you like, you literally go in like and you actually train your brain on some sort of system and it's shown like how your brain is evolving and you know how neural net like there's i know there's like biofeedback which actually helps it's like a brain training stimulation where it helps helps people in terms of like synaptic connections and a lot of people use it for emotional sort of rehabilitation of the brain and stuff so maybe it's, it, it'll be a sort of a, a branch of that maybe well even just getting you know many athletes have we're talking about movement strategies and having a wide variety of movement solutions. Very few professional athletes I find have as equal amount of mental strategies or solutions to handle yeah. some of the things that they're going to have to, um, you know, and that's just, again, I think humans as a whole, the more strategies that we can have or the more exposures that we have, the more prepared and ready we are to yeah. face anything that the world is going to offer us and give us we're all going to be there it just all depends on what we're perceiving and how we're intending to act and the decisions that we make so again local structures of movement problems have reflection in the bigger global problems uh you know that extend far beyond a football field or a track or powerlifting meet or or whatever sport it is that somebody participates in yeah, uh, but i think there's something to that for sure yeah, it's funny, like, I often feel like, and I'm going to do this one day where, like, I just want to get a blank piece of paper and just start writing these words that I feel are very important. And, like, words like veritability, robustness, you know, like, resiliency, they, they just seem to, you know, 80-20, like, just, like, little things like that in my head. Uh, you know, yin-yang, contrast, 
just but variability is definitely one like you know in that the more variability a system can express just the more robust and resilient it always is like when you get too specialized or too specific or too isolated that's when you become very fragile you're not you know you want to be anti-fragile anti-fragile means you've got a lot of variability in that system so you're more robust so it just comes back down to yeah variability and like as me and you have touched on in this conversation and any conversation it just it opens up that movement that movement landscape that bandwidth it's just i always just think of like you know it's kind of like you don't have the right answer but then it's kind of like aha and you like you pull your your hand from like behind your back and go yeah but let's try this key now <laughs> and then it's like and then like you go to that lock and it's like ah it's not opening it's like but i've got this key and you just keep going until like and then it's just like you know yeah get you finally find your like ching. You know, so well, and those of, are, you know, then it brings us back to, uh, you know, opportunities or invitations or affordances for action, right? Like we all have different per- affordances for action that we're going to perceive based on our own action capabilities and our own mm. effectivities and our, uh, our intentions and our aims of interacting with the world in our own unique and authentic special way. Big time. Sean, as always, phenomenal. I'm not going to lie when I was... You know, as we hopped online earlier on, we we were having some live discussions and like I was like today, I was like just one of those days I wasn't feeling I was like, I don't know if I'll do justice speaking to Sean today. But one part is like, no, I know I'll feel better from just talking to Sean, so I'm not <laughs> just, Well the feeling is mutual, my friend. I appreciate that and I will not take that lightly either. Um it was amazing. Come here again, just for anyone who is new to Sean Miska and the world of the movement Miyagi, um, where can they find out more about you? Yeah, you, you said the first place, the Movement Miyagi uh, at Twitter. Uh, you know, Robbie can see my, my Mr. Miyagi headband and uh, memorabilia back behind me there. But for those people who are just listening via podcast, it's at Movement Miyagi, just exactly the way that it sounds, like Mr. Miyagi, except Movement Miyagi on Twitter. And uh, obviously, I'm pretty active on there and interacting with individuals. Uh, otherwise, like I mentioned earlier, um, I, I do have a blog uh, where I break down football movement, uh, and I do it from this perspective, from an ecological dynamics framework. Uh, that's at footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com, literally the world's longest URL, footballbeyondthestats.wordpress.com. And then uh, also, as we mentioned at the onset of the conversation, uh, myself, along with a number of other passionate individuals, put together this movement skill education company uh, entitled Emergence, and that can be found at emergentmovement.com. And movement is abbreviated to be M V M T. Mm. So it's emergentmovement.com. Uh, and uh, otherwise, I would certainly encourage anyone to reach out to me. Uh, I'm always willing, as Robbie can attest to, to have a chat about these thoughts and ideas and concepts and and uh, talk shop in regards to movement skill or even just life as a whole. And I'll have all that linked up in the in the show notes. And Camille, one thing you actually don't plug, and there's a shit ton of really good information, is your YouTube channel. Well, yeah, that too. It, it, uh, I did. I got. I used to plug it a bit, and then I almost got so reliant on constantly putting together more and more content that then I started stretching myself awfully thin because I had all these different ways of people to communicate. Mm. Um, so I haven't put together any videos as of late, probably within the last year or so, but still, there is still a, a good amount of content yeah, there. A lot of stuff on it anyway, as it is. So, but it's just, yeah, I remember going through it one day going, holy shit, there's a really, 
a lot of great content and a lot of it here. So yeah. Very now good. I pretty much just use it as Stu McMillan will attest to as a place to load up videos for rebuttals for him. <laughs> yeah, you have that. You have that really good three part one. It's so funny. That that actually is funny that rebuttal you have because it's just like you're purely talking to Stu. And actually, it, 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 I haven't watched in a while, but isn't it? You were talking and talking, and then I think like your phone or camera died. And it, goes, <laughs> did, yeah. and it goes like to the next part and you go, okay, so my camera died there. But anyway, we're back to this. It's just like, yeah, yeah, it did. And the funny part about that, Robbie, and this will, you know, this, you will, will probably not come as a shock or a surprise. Not all of the videos I've given to Stu as rebuttals end up making it public. Cause I end up just like swearing at them and just being like, you are completely off your rocker on this idea. You know, it ends up being like, this long-winded rant where he can't give me a rebuttal in the immediate term, so I just get to keep rambling. <laughs> That's gas. Macmillan, what a legend. Yeah. Anyway, just, just, like, just like you. I, I love him to death, but he irritates me daily. <laughs> now, Stu, you've been called out. Uh, listen, uh, Sean, thanks so much. We appreciate your time, and I'll say goodbye to you offline. But for all the listeners, until next time, peace.